Hey everyone, welcome back to the Mike Rosart Show. We are here live in my office. Sorry this is just popping up now. I Hopefully it's gonna go out here, okay. I think we're live, I'm on my phone. I'm not plugged in today, so when the battery dies on my iPhone, that's the end of the stream. So I'll have some fun with that. I don't know how long we'll get, maybe 45 minutes or so. When you jump on, just say hey. Hey Future Wiz, good to see you on. Uh, yeah, so what are we talking about today? I just got back from like, I'm selling my house right now. You guys go on realtor.ca and see uh, my house, 67 Acorn. And uh, just had a showing. So we just literally got back. Hey, Andrew. Literally got back like two minutes ago. Sorry I'm late. Ran in here, turned my phone on, and uh, really quickly got uh, got mic'd up. So hopefully you can hear me loud and clear. I don't know if this microphone's working all right or not. But uh, hey, Judy. How you doing? These streams get shorter and shorter. So we average a good hour and like 10 minutes on our streams. Some streams are 30 minutes, some streams I've had like two and a, I almost had a three hour stream once. So you guys know I've streamed a long time. If you wanna follow me along and play with me on World of Warcraft, that's cool too. I'm also playing World of Warcraft and you can, like in the comments, I'll mention my gamer tag. But uh, what are we talking about today? We're talking about, now that I've delayed for the last minute for people to get the notification. Today I decided to talk about how to retire on less than you think, right? How to retire on $500,000 or less. I should have maybe titled it, if I had time to think through a proper title, I might have titled it something like um, how to retire on less than you think or how to retire on like very little amount of money. Hey Tommy, good to see you on. Um, Andrew, good to see you on too. So how do you retire on less than you think? That's basically the topic for today because a lot of people I talk to think that they need a lot more than they actually do. I started doing coaching calls now on a very select limited basis and uh, on the few coaching calls I've been doing, been a lot of fun like to give you guys reference I do them in this office right uh, there this board and when you're done the coaching call I literally take a picture of like my scribblings and notes and things like that and so that's always fun it's my desk over there in my office uh, okay so now you saw behind the scenes let's talk about uh, by the way if you have any questions related to like personal finance or like even real estate questions specifically feel free to jump in the comments and uh, and share those but like a recurring theme I'm noticing is that people think they need a lot more to retire than they actually do. And everyone thinks they need millions and millions to retire and they don't realize that they just need to put their money to work better. Like the first thing I noticed when I talk to the average like person, like the average Canadian or North American is they've got a house and they've got like several hundred thousand dollars in equity trapped in their house. And they're like, my goal is to pay off my mortgage and my goal is to retire and my goal is this and my goal is that. And it's interesting when you look at the goals, you're like, hmm, you say your goal is to pay off your house and your goal is to retire with maximum amount of passive income. And then I ask them questions like, what's a good rate of return to you? And they're like, oh, seven, eight percent, ten percent, that would be great. You know, higher would be even better. And then they're putting money against their mortgage, saving themselves 2.79% on their mortgage payments. I'm like, are you guys thinking through the math on this? And they're like, oh, I just I've always been told in like popular culture that paying down your mortgage was a good thing and it's not really a good thing on your primary residence, doesn't make a lot of sense. Like there's no tax deduction, so you're like, I mean that's one thing in your favor, but other than that, like to guarantee a 2.79% return is like treasury bill level returns. I'm like, they're like, well it's safe, you know, it's against real estate, Canadian real estate, and I'm paying that down and it feels good. I'm like, but couldn't you just then instead, let's think this through, go lend first mortgages at 12%. 
So go secure against someone else's house, 70% loan to value. As in, if prices drop 25%, you still don't lost a dollar. Your money's guaranteed. Prices drop 30%, you still haven't lost anything and you've got your mortgage payments that whole time. So you're, you're safe, you're secured, you're in first secured against another real estate asset and you can get 10 or 12%. Why would you pay off your own first mortgage at 2.79? Go and find someone who needs the money desperately but has a lot of asset in their house and then secure against that and put your money to work in a much more advantageous way. $500,000, for instance, at 12% in the first mortgage, really safe. Like the chances that Canadian real estate's gonna drop 30% and you're not gonna get paid and the person's gonna default. So they have to default and rates have to go down, or uh, prices have to go down 30%. And they have to decide to not pay you through other ways. Let's say they have other properties or assets. All three of those things happen then you're in a position where you could lose a little bit of money. So the, the chance of loss is worse than like, if I own the S&P 500, I feel, I, I'm actually feeling less secure. If I own, for instance, uh, honestly, like government treasury bills, T-bills, I feel like real estate has an equal, or sorry, first mortgages, 70% loan to value, has an equal risk to a T-bill, pretty much. Because the government's going to, if there's a 30% price correction in Toronto, if houses that were selling for a million go down to like 700,000 or 650, we are gonna have such major crisis in this country, the government will literally step in. They will stimulate, they will lower interest rates, they'll offer first time home buyer programs, they will start stimulating uh, basically through like reducing lending restrictions so people can buy again and then prices go up. What we'll see is like a five or 10% correction, that's possible. 20%, that's a major, major recession. But like full on depression, like 2008 is a 30% drop. And so first I, I considered like, the risk to reward ratio on first secured mortgages, ridiculous. Like if you can get a 10 or 12% return and be secured 70% loan to value, that's, that's retardedly low risk for really good returns and solid cash flow. And like $500,000 at 12% is $60,000 a year, forever. So like, can you live on $5,000 a month? I, I would challenge anyone watching this, you can live on $5,000 a month. Like there's, there's probably no subscriber of like the 14,000 are following, there's probably like two people who are like, I cannot live on $5,000 a month. You can do it. You may have to pare back a little bit if you're like living a really extravagant lifestyle, but $500,000 gets you $5,000 a month, private lending. Now, if you buy real estate, you lever it up and you use that 500,000 for down payments, $500,000 that I talked about at the start of this video also gets you, um, so if you think about this, right? $500,000, 20% down payment means you can lever up five to one. So $500,000 buys you like two and a half million dollars in real estate. So if you, could, if you could theoretically qualify for those each of those mortgages, now each property you buy is gonna have rental income, which will help you qualify for the second property and the third and the fourth and the fifth. It's just whether you can get started and qualify for that first property. That's the most challenging part, I think. And it gets easier after that, up to about five to 10 mortgages, then it gets hard again and you have to start exploring you know, credit unions and B lenders and things like that. Um, but very interesting to think through like how little money you need when you rely on real estate to actually retire. Like people are thinking they need millions and millions of dollars, but you'd be surprised how little you actually need. So that's what this video topic was supposed to be about. But as always on the Mike Rosehart Show, we always do live Q and A. So we will do some live Q and A as well. I've seen some questions popping up here and I will do my best to get through as many as I possibly can. So future Wiz, I kind of answered your question in my preamble there a minute ago. So how much is that in passive income, you said? So $500,000 could generate you, let's look at like, if I turn to the whiteboard, you could see like I could do a 50% equities, 50% you know, private lending or real estate lending, or you could do 50, 25% you know, rental properties, put 25% of that money. So 
that's about 125,000 or so dollars into buying, that would be the down payment for like two properties. So you buy two rental properties with that and then still have like 375,000 left over, put a couple hundred thousand dollars into say like private lending and then get passive income of 10 or 12% from that, which could be another couple thousand dollars a month in, in income. You got three, $4,000 a month coming in and then you can put the rest in, you know, maybe, I don't know, equities. Pick exchange traded funds like the Vanguard, VTI, all in one index, and then you can get some passive dividend income from that as well as some capital appreciation. And your $500,000 would give you a ton of passive income as well as some capital appreciation long term. So you'd be surprised if you have, like, a lot of people do actually who watch my channel. My average, interestingly, my average viewer is looking at the data who watches my video is like 44. So I don't know if that's like an average between like 60 year olds watching and like 20 year olds watching, but it's very strange because YouTube's average age viewer is 17. So my channel has a lot of older, more mature um, viewers, people who are thinking about their personal finances, right? And so they're in their 30s and their 40s and their 50s. Most of these people who are watching, probably you're watching right now, but who are watching the replay too and watching my other videos, you have maybe even a million dollars in equity trapped in your home or trapped in your rental properties, generating you a terrible return. If you own a property in cash, a rental property or a home, that's a bad use of capital. Like straight up, doesn't matter what your cap rate is, doesn't matter where you're buying that real estate, if you're in Canada or the United States, likely you're getting a bad return on your money. So if you have a $300,000 house in London, Ontario here, paid off in cash, I'm gonna slap you because that's a bad return. You're getting maybe a six or 7%, maybe 8% return on your cash. If you go get a mortgage on that property, now you can get a return on investment or ROI of 30, 35, 40% on your money, pull that money out and buy more. I always ask people the same, the question that like helps people understand this is like, would you rather one property paid off generating you $1,500 a month in cash flow, or would you rather five properties at 20% down? It's the same amount of money. One property, 100% paid off is the exact same as five properties at 20% down. Hey, little bump. Hey everyone, Eric, good to see you on. A lot of the regulars popping on. Brandon, what's up? Good to see you on too. Uh, I'll get to your guys' questions in just a sec. Border Hopper, good to see you too. So to William, good to see you on as well. So the regulars are all jumping on, good to see you guys all on. So making the point, one property paid off, because people paid on their properties. Like I, I talk to a lot of people, look at their balance sheets when they ask me about their fire plans or they wanna talk about like how do they re-optimize their, their portfolios. First thing I do is look is like, what is the equity disposition of your portfolio? Like do you have 20% down on every property or do you have one property that's almost fully paid off? The first thing I would say is like, let's refinance that, take that capital and put it to work somewhere else. Even if you go and get a mortgage on that property and pull out 80% of it, you know, leave 20% in of the equity, get an appraisal, pull 80% out, put that to work in private lending at 10 or 12%, borrow the bank's money at 3% and then go secure it against someone else's real estate at 10%. Boom, there's a 7% difference for you on every dollar you borrow from the bank. If you go pull out $400,000 mortgage on that property that had all that equity, put it to work at 10%, you get a 7% spread. That's 28 grand or 30 grand a year extra in your pocket just by reallocating the assets you already have. Just mind blowing. But anyway, so five properties, would you rather have one property fully paid off, 1,500 bucks a month coming in your pocket because you have no mortgage, or five properties with mortgages 20% down, and I would put, be in a situation where you'd have say, maybe 600 a month in cash flow on each one. You're getting less cash flow because you have mortgages to pay on all these. So you get 600, 600, 600, 600, 600. It's probably actually closer to 800, realistically, if I ran real numbers, but $1,500 or five times 600 or $3,000 a month 
And let's not think that, just stop at the cash flow. Let's say the market appreciates 10%. Your $400,000 property appreciates 10%, you make 40 grand. You have five $400,000 properties now. Instead of one paid off one, you have 20% down on all five. All of a sudden, what is five times $400,000 houses? That's $2 million in real estate. Market appreciates 10%, you just made 200,000. The same amount of money invested, one property paid off, five properties at 20% down, you just made $200,000 in appreciation on your same amount of capital invested as you would have made 40,000 owning one property. So more properties, 20% down, much better than one property paid off. So that's a big mistake, see it all the time. People have the money to retire and they just aren't allocating it correctly. They could be out of their desk job, free, enjoying their lives, but instead they uh, just not making the right choices. I am guilty too. I have a house right now I'm thinking of, specifically I'm talking to my, my partner on it, and we're thinking about like, I think it's, it's in a situation where I got a really good deal on it. I bought this property for like 160 something thousand dollars. It's worth like 350 today. Um, our mortgage on it's like 130. So I have a couple hundred thousand dollars in equity in this property. Now we're bringing, we're pulling in like 3,000 a month in rent, a little bit more than that here in London. And so it's well over 1% rural property now. It's a 2% rule when I bought it. Uh, a year and a half ago and that was a year and a half ago even like people were saying there's no deals a year and a half ago and by the way I just picked up five deals in the last 60 days that are all one percent rule so I'm buying one percent rule all day right now in London when people are struggling for like nine ten cap properties I keep buying them so they still exist like I'm getting like Windsor level cash flow in London still so I don't know why everyone's saying London's so hard there's still tons of opportunity if you know where to look and know where to smell um, especially now we're going into the buying season I'll probably buy between now and February 30 or 40 properties if I have the investor capital pool backing me to buy them so if you're interested in buying properties reach out um, not yet give me like 30 days I have I'm outsourcing a lot of uh, how we do the management piece and so that's gonna fix a lot of our problems I'm not ready to take on 30 or 40 properties yet, but I'm building the logistics now so that when the opportunities fall in my lap, because they're going to, we a wholesale business, uh, you know, growing and, and winding up. And then obviously I'm a realtor and I got a realtor team. That's about to wind up in a big way because you know, the best time to buy houses is now until February. The best time, probably till January actually, is the best time to buy real estate in cold cities like London, Ontario. No one wants to get out there and hunt. It's the coolest, cool time, all the, you know, the nice flowers and things like that have all like died off. It's the best time to get, actually average purchase price down, I think on MLS 11.6%, 10, 10 to 12%, the data year over year, every single year in London, in Toronto, you look at the map, there's actual average sale price drops off. You can look at the data yourself. I'm not even just like, it's not even a trend that I'm observing because there is an ability to negotiate better deals under asking right now, but not just like what I'm physically seeing in the market, but what the data actually shows for the last 15 years in London. Every single year, December is the worst month. It is the best time to buy. Anyway, I'm getting off my tangent because people have argued with me and said like, no, I'm gonna wait for the spring to buy. There's way more inventory in the spring. It's like, that's true, but demand is also like through the roof. No one wants to move in the winter. Anyway, getting off that topic, back to answering your questions and then back to me doing a tangent about how you could retire on a lot less than you think. That's what the whole point of this video was supposed to be and live Q&A because, you know, every Wednesday the Micro Start Show is all about that Q&A. I'm very interested in your opinion on how each real estate market in Ontario will be affected during a recession from, say, Toronto to Windsor. Okay, so Tommy, Tommy, good to see you on. By the way, it was great meeting you in person at OREC. Um, I love like when people come up and approach me at, at conferences and places like that and say, hey, like, Mike, I've been watching your videos and 
it means a lot to me. It tells me that the work that I'm doing is, is having an impact on you guys and that the time is not all wasted because I don't make any money from, like YouTube is a terrible way to make money. If you wanna generate passive income, do not make a YouTube channel. Like go buy real estate or like start a business or do coaching calls or something else. Coaching calls are not passive, don't do coaching calls. But if you enjoy it, like do coaching calls, that's cool. I limit myself to like three coaching calls a week maximum. After that, I feel drained. So if you do wanna do coaching calls with me, uh, just know there's a long lineup to get on get on the phone with me a few weeks booked out because I just don't wanna make it a full-time or even like a mostly part-time thing. Okay, so the question was talking about real estate prices in Southwestern Ontario or like maybe just like south of Toronto, I guess including Toronto. Okay, so how would a real estate recession affect these areas? Let's let's walk through a big metropolitan like Toronto. So Toronto's got a little over 5 million people in greater Toronto area, maybe even a little bit more. So what happens in a recession? In a recession, what happens is inventory starts to sit. The first thing that happens is the phone stops ringing. Realtors notice there's not a lot of activity. That's the start of every recession. So realtors will know active realtors will know when a recession is coming before it comes, right? Because we're gonna notice the phone isn't ringing. People aren't jumping off the phone for uh, you know, properties. Right now, there's still a bit of pent up demand from the spring and the summer, like where we had 10 or 12 offers on properties. Now we're not seeing that. We're seeing a couple of offers. A lot of that pent up demand is being satiated by supply. And so in a recession, what happens is there's an oversupply. People are trying to get in and sell their house before the recession happens. They start to see that the recession's happening, then everyone wants to list. Like, oh, the market's high, it's starting to drop, I need to sell and capitalize those gains. So a whole bunch of supply comes on market. All the supply that was gonna sell before, plus what's naturally gonna be selling, plus all these new people who are like, I need to sell my house before it goes down in value. Then all the flippers jump in, they're like, oh no, it's a recession, I gotta dump this property while I still can. So supply goes way up, way through the roof in a, re in a recession, and demand tends to drop. Because the people who were like jumping on it before are now saying to themselves, oh, I can just wait like a week. This property isn't going to be sold next week. I'll wait and see if I get a better offer. I'll try a lowball offer, 100,000 over and see, uh, under, and see what happens. I'll, I'll wait, you know, I'll put conditions in my offer and we'll see what happens. I'll put home inspection in, we'll see what comes up. There's not that sort of heat and excitement that gets people, you know, to overpay. So that that dies in, in, a, in a recession. So that's the first thing that happens. Then what you see is prices start to drop. Not right away. It needs to be a long recession for prices to drop. If there's a short-term blip, like look at Vancouver. Vancouver's a good example of what happens in a slowdown. So Vancouver went through a slowdown. We saw some price dropping. But for the most part, prices remain, remain solid. You saw a lot of articles on the CBC and wherever, all people posting about how Vancouver sales down. They're talking about number of units, like as in less houses are selling. They're not necessarily selling for less, but everyone's posting articles like Vancouver sales down 12%, Vancouver down 12%. It's like Vancouver wasn't really down that much. If you look at like the detached houses there and especially the condos, when I looked at the data and I didn't do a deep dive, but like I saw a little report, what I was seeing was that houses were not dropping that much. Like there was a big difference between what people were listing for, what people were trying to offer, but a lot of people were just like, I'm gonna hold until I get what I want because I got cash flow or because I'm rich. In Vancouver, people had a lot of appreciation. So they bought these houses for 200,000, they're worth like 2 million. And so if they sell them for 1.8, they're not that worried. But uh, yeah, what you're seeing is just a lot, in the beginning, there's just a lack of volume. So a, a lot less volume and a lot more days on market. So you'll see your days on market scoot up in a market when it's slow. So days on market in London still like 12 or 13, I think. I'd have to double check the stats, but 
really low. Like if you saw start seeing 60 days on market average for houses, stuff starting to sit, that's a good sign because the sellers are often irrational and they think they're gonna get their price. And so it'll take a while for them to realize there's a recession and actually lower their price unless they're desperate. But for the most part, what you're gonna see is that days on market goes way up and you're gonna also see things like um, list prices are seeing price reductions, things like that. But for the most part, people will hold their price. It'll take a while before prices start to come down. So actual price in real estate to actually drop takes some time. So if the recession is long, then you see prices start dropping. Well, what happens if prices start dropping? In places like Toronto, that can be very devastating in someone's real estate portfolio because they don't have cash flow. There are exceptions to that rule. I know people in the GTA who cram like, they have like I know a guy who has like a 12 bedroom student rental in Toronto and he cranks out the cash flow. He, I know another person does Airbnb and they crank out the cash flow. So those people who are Airbnb and they have the really good student rentals in Toronto, they'll wait. Like they're not gonna sell. They're just gonna refinance while things are high and hold. You know, they got like cash flow coming in really well. They can wait a year or two till things bounce back. So it doesn't really affect anything unless you're flipping or you need to exit. So if you don't need to sell, then it doesn't have a huge impact on you in any way. In fact, during a recession, it's actually good for us current investors because what the government is gonna do is step in. So once real estate prices drop more than five or 10%, the government steps in. When the market was hot, they put in rules like stress testing, which makes it harder to qualify for income here in Ontario. They put in a whole bunch of rules to try to cool the market off. It's the government's job to cool things down. Well, when things are cool, they come in and say, eh, that guy has $40,000 a year in income, we'll let him have a house. Whereas before he needed 70, so they declined him. Now he can start buying a house. So the, what they do is they make it more affordable for people to qualify and that helps stimulate the economy. So that's what the, the government will do. It won't be right away. It'll take six months to a year lag, um, but it'll, it'll throw some, some gas on the fire and heat things up. The government will step in and they will ensure that real estate doesn't crash. We could see several years of flat. We could see you know a couple percentage points down, but it's naturally good for the economy. Like real estate is one of the number one drivers of an economy. There is so much GDP associated with real estate. I hate when people jump in and say like, but real estate investors don't do anything for the economy. Like they're all just about themselves. Like investors drive the entire economy. It is one of the leading sources of GDP, right? When you buy and sell a house, there are agents associated, lawyers associated, all the clerks and admins and all the, the city workers and utilities are switching over. And then you have to renovate the property. So there's all these contractors that come in and do all the renovation. And then places like Home Depot have to sell you the materials. And then there's a lawn maintenance guy who has to care for the land and et cetera, so forth and on and on and on. Real estate is a very large driver of GDP. So real estate being depressed for a long period of time is not healthy for any country. So a country will step in and lower interest rates potentially. What are the things that the government could do? They can lower interest rates. They could jump in and say, you know, we're gonna make it more easy for people to qualify for mortgages. So then some of the more, um, not risk averse, but the opposite of that, like someone who's more risk tolerant, I guess you'd call them, they would jump in and start buying rental properties, drive price up, right? Guys like me, if you, if you lower my affordability, I'm gonna go find a bunch of really good cash flowing properties at 60 cents on the dollar. I'm gonna buy, buy, buy. So it's a win for, like I actually am, I'm waiting, I'm so excited for the next recession. Let's look at London, let's look at Windsor, because I promised I'd do Toronto, London to Windsor corridor. And you can extrapolate to any city in between. So Toronto's really big, London's like half a million people, and then Windsor's like 250,000. So we'll get to like medium city and then super small. I guess Windsor's like pretty small. Not the smallest you can go in a place like Sarnia, like 100,000 people. But uh, basically, what happens? In London, I've got really good cash flow. Most of my properties cash flow 1,000 to 1,500 a month positive. That's like a target that I would go for. So some properties don't, it's always a variation. But uh, if I got positive cash flow, right, in a market like London, 
pretty much everyone has positive cash flow. Unless you're dumb enough to buy some of that really overpriced garbage near Western or in like Northwest, there's some really overpriced garbage that doesn't cash flow. New builds, some a lot of the new builds don't cash flow. So those people who are cash flow negative buying for appreciation, they're gonna be screwed in a recession. And so that's obviously, you know, an issue. But when you think about it, you've got an issue where or what is the issue? Like prices drop, so supply is, is going up, demand is going down, I'm buying and holding, I have strong cash flow, I've disposed a few of my properties in the high times, because you know I talk about rebalancing your portfolio, no one buys and holds forever, you buy and hold when it's convenient, you put on, you have an exit so that you can always buy and hold on a rental property, but be prepared to exit if the market's right. If I get an offer on a property for a great price, I mean, I'm, I'm all about selling my property, I don't hold irrationally. But I also will hold if market is going down and I'm getting solid cash flow. There's no reason to dump the property. We just hold. We're cash flow positive. So it's not really an issue at all. Um, during recession, rental demand tends to remain either neutral or become stronger because people can't afford to buy. So all of us who have rental properties and strong cash flow, we're doing great in a recession. Like, times are good. Maybe what you'll see is rental prices, if you look at data, Rent prices stay flat, even in recessions. House prices drop, rent prices stay pretty much flat. What you will see though is vacancy rates creep up. Where you have like near zero vacancy here, you might see 5%. You might have to work a little bit harder to find that right tenant. We're seeing that at the higher price point here in London now. We're starting to see, you know, for that top price point of whatever you're trying to rent out, one bedroom, two bedroom, three bedroom. If you're going for the top echelon, it's very hard to find quality tenants. There's a lot of garbage tenants who are applying and willing to pay a premium because they can't get a place anywhere. But to find quality tenants is very hard in the pool right now. We're, we're having a hard time screening and things like that. But uh, yeah, in a recession, you just have to work that much harder at that. And that's why good management is so important. Uh, and finding a good management company is so important to, to work with. And then Windsor, exact same thing as London, like almost no difference. I think that, you know, when you're playing for appreciation, you're taking a big risk. You're, I did a video, did I do the video yet? Did last week's video, what was last week's videos on buy and hold? This Saturday's video, sorry, it's already filmed, but this Saturday's video is going to be on, okay, so it's not out yet. Are you an investor or a gambler? And so we can go into that video and I'll leave it there because it's a good whiteboard video. I, I walk in the ins and outs of determining whether you're a gambler or an investor and how to become more of a gambler and, or more of an investor and less of a gambler. So that's what that video is about. You can check that out. I don't want to spoil the video. I want you to watch it Saturday. And if you're watching this replay, jump in the comments and say hi if you're watching now. Hit that thumbs up button. Why are there only, there's 45 people watching right now. Why is there only seven likes? We've had over 100 people jump in this stream tonight and seven likes, come on. I just lost a like. One of the mentees just unliked on purpose. There we go, likes are jumping up, cool, thanks. 11 likes, there we go, there we go, I like that. Swan, good to see you. Uh, okay, so we walked through that. Uh, also, UBS just recently released a study on real estate bubbles globally and Toronto came in second place. Thoughts? I think that Toronto maybe is a bit of a inflated market from a price to rent perspective. I don't own any property in Toronto, so I'm largely unaffected. But if I did, what I would do is refinance it now or probably sell it now while things are still strong, while Toronto's still relatively strong. I think that Toronto's market economically is very fundamentally strong. Like it's a place people want to live. And so because of that, the market will always have strong fundamentals that might, and I think because those strong fundamentals might offset reasonable affordability metrics you'd normally look at. Does that sort of make sense? I think that places like London have seen a lot of appreciation too. 
and I'm very leery about buying property that doesn't have strong cash flow. So I'm very, very focused right now on cash flow plays more than I am on plays that are like appreciation upside. Any, I have like one or two flips that I'm finishing off. I'm gonna sell those flips. I'm gonna be toning back on the flipping a bit just cause I am apprehensive or at least a bit cautious about the market cooling down as we go into the winter here. I don't think it's a good place to be as a flipper unless you're flipping income properties. And I know people who, like that's always been my strategy. I buy like student rentals or duplexes, triplexes. And I, if I'm gonna turn around a building over time, at least as cash flow, if the flip fails, I can hold and have good cash flow. If you're flipping single family houses, you don't have cash flow. Like it's hard to flip single family and have cash flow. So uh, you're kind of stuck. If you put tenants in and they destroy the, the nice flip work you just did. And so if you're holding it too long, carrying costs, you roll your property profit. So flippers, speculators get burned in recessions. That's pretty much who gets affected the most. But uh, yeah, if you have cash flow, you just hold. It's, it's a non-issue. If you're getting like a 10% annual or 15% annual dividend, I target for all my investors 20 to 25% return on their money. So if that's the target, then 25% dividend, do you care if there's any appreciation? Like literally, if none of my investors got appreciation, there would still be some cash flow over a long-term period. You might have one or two bad tendencies that pop up. You might have like an eviction that pops up or some vacancy. You gotta build those into your budget. But if you have good cash flow, long-term, all of that fades to the wayside as like a 5% of revenue type of thing. So you end up with a really good situation at the end of the day. If you are a buy and hold first, but always planning for an exit second. I try to buy and hold. That's my main strategy. You guys know I talk about the buy and hold. I love the buy and hold strategy. Buy and hold for cash flow. Always ready to sell. Everything I have is for sale and I always have three exit opportunities. Sometimes the exit is just a burr where we pull all the capital out through refinance. Sometimes it's planned to sell. Sometimes there's other exit opportunities like development or things like that. But having multiple exit options is so important. People go into these properties maybe just for cash flow with no exit. And you need to have that exit in mind too. So I'm always thinking, can I cash flow? And the second thing is, what is my exit? So I've always got to be able to see the light. See the light from the cash flow and then see the light from the exit. Multiple streams of exit ensure you don't lose money. Because the most important thing in investing is do not lose money. None of my investors to date have lost money. None of them will lose money. And for that, I mean, it's possible. I can't say no one will ever lose money because it's equity investing will knock on wood. But the, the biggest thing is to try to not lose money. That's the most important part of investing. Everyone's focused on the returns. Returns are important. Like getting, I see people advertising 30, 40% returns, some crazy stuff sometimes. But more important than getting those high returns is not losing what you have, wealth preservation. That's why real estate's so attractive to me. Um, that's why exchange traded funds, extremely diversified stock portfolios and equity portfolios are so important to me because with diversification comes safety. You do not want to lose the money you have, especially if you're going into retirement or early retirement. Do you wanna to have to go back to work? Probably not, right? It makes sense to be able to stay retired and not lose your money. Like going from 500,000 money to $250,000 in money feels really bad. It feels a lot worse, trust me, than going from $500,000 to $750,000. That $250,000 loss feels twice or three times as painful as the gains. And I know I've lost a couple hundred thousand dollars before doing things. I've made some decisions in stock investing. It didn't go so well. I guess the most I've ever probably lost is like, $25,000 in a day, but that was stock investing back in the day. And that feels terrible. That feels worse. Like when I lost $20,000 in a stock pick, that felt a lot worse than when I had days where I made $100,000 in real estate. Like I made $100,000 in a day and I was less, like I had less energy than when I lost $25,000. That felt so much worse. That's just me. That's my investor profile. I'm very risk averse. 
Um, awesome, we have over 50 people on the stream live right now. Smack that like button if you're just jumping in. And I'm gonna do some more Q&A. Let's hit another question. Brandon, what's up? Good to see you on. Um, so yeah, that's my opinion on Toronto. So uh, are we required to vacate a property when acquired the property with a tenant before securing a rental license? Will the city penalize if the property has tenant before getting a license? So it depends on the city. It depends on a lot of things. Um, the city often doesn't force evictions. Oftentimes, um, what you'll see is that they'll strongly advise it. I've seen them fine before when you can't evict a tenant. They say it's not our problem. You have to get rid of the tenant. So that's been a bit of a pain. Um, what I can say is this. In all of my experience, all of my years, hey Kelly, thanks for jumping on. Uh, and I appreciate that. That means a lot. So in all my years of doing real estate, so I guess eight years, I'm a young guy, right? I'll be like 27 in November, but in my eight years of doing real estate investing since I was 19, I have noticed the number one thing for success in real estate investing for me has been making sure I have a value upside. Whenever I buy something, I go for cash flow and value upside. Because I always have that value upside, even if I have to pay a tenant to leave, even if I have to go through like a six months of no cash flow. It's okay. Like sometimes it takes a year to tear apart a property and put it back together because you know, the city gets involved and you have to get rid of tenants. There's this whole thing going on with it. Um, actually as a random aside, cause I like to do a lot of random uh, divergence from my, my train of thought, get vacant possession. I love properties vacant. I will pay premiums for properties vacant. I hate dealing with tenants, like inherited tenants so badly that I would, yeah. I, get vacant possession, it's the best thing you can do. Um, having to evict tenants sucks. It's, um, it's brutal, it really is. Um, it's one of the hardest jobs of a landlord. So if you can do the screening at the outset, you don't have to place a tenant that has, you know, a bunch of kids and animals and has no money. You can take your time and screen and find a good tenant. Now there have been, I've had bad employees that have placed bad tenants before working for a company. I've actually never, I've only placed one tenant in eight years that I've ever had to evict. And I didn't have to evict them. I asked them to leave and they're like, I can't pay all my rent and I'm sorry about the damage. Here's $500 and they left. That was one time. I, I've literally never, yeah, in hundreds of tenants, I've never placed a tenant that I've had to take to the landlord tenant board and evict. I've had other people place tenants that I've had to evict. I've done a lot of that landlord tenant board. Um, I bought properties that have bad tenants in it that I've had to evict, a lot of that. Um, and that sucks, especially ones that don't pay their rent and stuff, but I've never placed, yeah, I have a good track record. And you know why I have a good track record? Because it takes me forever to place, which is why I outsourced it, because I couldn't physically do it with too many units. But I spend so long, my gut check is really important to me. Like I go, and, I go and look at where they live, I go check their credit, I look through their bank account. If you get credit, I ask for like, I often, I say volunteer me your bank account, 30 day or 60 day history and your credit card. And like, you don't have to, but it would help your application. And if I review that, I see someone, how someone's spending their money in 60 days, I can tell you everything about a person. 60 days, you see how they spend their money, you can see everything about a person. You can see where they're going, people are like, anyway, I won't go into the details, but that's been a really big thing for me because just having cash in your account isn't enough. You need to also see how they spend their cash and how the cash is coming in, but that doesn't lie. People who have consistent good spending habits and good income coming in have, in my experience, always been good tenants. I might have tenants that are a little bit complainy, a little bit whiny, they own entitled, but that goes with A-class tenants. They expect the world. Like when you put in a white stove, they're like, come on, stainless, please. They're gonna expect a little bit higher finish. I'm okay with that, and I prefer that tenant all day long over the tenant that doesn't pay rent or that has issues, right? So you can't ever have everything. 
You can have anything you want, but you can't have everything you want. So pick what you want and stick to it. Next question. Low pump, what's up? Eric, good to see you on as well. Uh, okay. Next question is weird flex. Flex? I don't know what that's about. What do you think about selling covered call options? <laughs> David Gustav. So I did a tiny bit of options trading when I was like 18 years old. And Graham Stephan just did a great video. Actually, jump on it. Go check out Graham Stephan's video. He did, I don't know if it's on his main channel or his alt channel, I forget, it just popped up in my feed, about um, what do you do it on? It was on like uh, how day traders, 80% of day traders lose money. It's a fact. People who actively trade stocks, if you look at like over a 20 year period, I think it's like 99% of them lose money and they lose a lot of money. So my advice has always been, unless you're Warren Buffett and even then, um, if you're actively day trading on momentum trading, using some like program to try to trade, uh, historical based trading, even value investing, and value investing is my favorite of all the active trading methods. It has the highest probability of success. And that's why I'm a value investor and value trader. But all the rest of the methods where you're like doing momentum or swing trading or trying to do options trading, watch this Saturday's video on are you a gambler or an investor? And that will help you decide whether or not it makes sense for you. But um, what are my thoughts? It, you, so what it, first I'll start, I'll start with people who are watching who don't know what options are. Options trading is the idea that you can basically buy a right to buy a stock at a set price, right? So, friend, or sell a stock at a set price. So you can effectively say like, I don't know, say Apple's trading at like, just, okay, XX stock. I don't wanna pick any one stock because I don't wanna even jump in here and like critique me, but blank stock, XX stock, right? Trades at like a dollar a share. You could say, you know, I think that uh, the shares are gonna go to two bucks a share or whatever, or the shares are gonna go down to 50 cents. You say, I wanna buy it, I wanna buy the right, so one, one chance, one option is you, I wanna buy the right to buy this stock at 50 cents on the dollar. And so if the stock drops to 50 cents on the dollar, then I will go and buy and, and get, basically get the difference, right? The other way is you can basically buy an option to uh, be able to sell your shares at a certain price. So the, the option to buy at a certain price or sell at a certain price, so that's what options are effectively. Um, the idea would be that, uh, I didn't do a good job of explaining this because I don't have any definitions in front of me, but the idea that you could predict the future price of a stock and then sell the right to that, that feels really risky to me. Like, do I have a crystal ball in the future? No. Even in real estate, I don't like to play the appreciation game. So David, to answer your question, you can do it. Do I think it's a good idea? No, no I don't. Unless you had some sort of, okay, I can think of a situation where maybe it would make sense if you had a really good insider information, was if like there was extreme, certain options sometimes trade at really big discounts and there's arbitrage opportunities just in the spread of the options, right? You're buying an option that expires in say 120 days and there's some sort of like edge or option you can make money, but still you're, you're then you're betting on like, market fundamentals or you're betting on the economy or the political landscape, it just doesn't feel right to me. Maybe to have some fun with, like if I had five or $10,000 to play with and I just set that aside and I was okay to lose all that and I had some sort of angle or upside, maybe I'd, I'd play option trade, uh, sell options or uh, you know, covered calls or whatever, um, or put options, whatever you're, whatever you're doing. I don't know what, you're, what options you're trying to sell there, but um, it's basically just like covering your downside. Some people also hedge their investments. So they'll buy a stock and then they'll buy like a, uh, you know, a hedge of buying an option to have the right to buy the stock if it drops. And so if the stock goes out, let's say you buy a stock at like, 
and I guess you, you wouldn't do this, but let's say you bought an option for a stock. It's like trading at a dollar right now. You buy the option, um, you know, say it's gonna be going to $1.50. You could buy the option to buy it at a dollar when it's trading at $1.50. So then you go back to the market, you say, hey, I have this option I bought for like 50 bucks. That, and it depends on what the market sentiment is, that's how they value the options. They say like, if everyone's betting that Apple's gonna go up, then the cost for that option is gonna be very expensive. But if everyone's betting it's gonna go down, then that option would be really cheap. But you buy that and it's contract, if you don't use it, it just expires. Like they usually have a time limit. Like you buy an option for like 90 days or 120 days or six months and that option contract expires. And when it expires, it's worth zero. So you paid hundred bucks to have this option, basically like a hedge or insurance. And uh, whoa, phone's gonna die. Phone's gonna die. I'm just gonna plug you in. Give me a second here. I think it's connected. Don't know for sure, but. Thing is connected. Oh, you guys, what was I talking about options? Options trading, very risky. Even for someone with a finance degree like myself, uh, very, very risky. I'm just gonna lay down and like do it this way because I forgot my extension cord. Hello world. Look at this fancy little cup. It's a YouTube cup that I got. Mark Suisse, if you're watching, thank you for this. I appreciate that cup. It means a lot to me. My first YouTube and it's tin. You wouldn't think it's tin, but it is. Oh, this is better. I can just kind of lay back. This is how the micro search show should be. Right here, I like this. Getting up close and personal with Mike Rosehart, live. What kind of show is this becoming? All right, let's go back to the, uh, the questions here. I gotta really catch up. I'm getting behind on the questions. There's a lot of them here. I appreciate every one of them. Okay. So Mike, feels like I wasted four to five years in college making pennies, hopefully it pays off. Future Wiz, I'll tell you this, I've also, I don't know what that, that isn't even my degree, that's just like an honors certificate for being top 20% of my class or something at Ivy. But um, I also spent six figures on college education. I have a finance and accounting degree. And I'll tell you, it was valuable in the sense that my network increased and I made a lot of great connections and like I learned a ton could I have learned it all um, myself, like in the real world through you know, studying on Google and just talking to people? Yes. But it got me in the door for a lot of places. Today, it doesn't matter. Like people, when I meet new people, people don't look at my resume at all. They just say like, oh wow, Mike with like 50 properties and like eight figure real estate portfolio. And like, they care about all the things I'm doing now. They don't care about the degree. I think the degrees helped me like once with one investor ever. They were like, oh wow, Ivy guy, super smart, nice, I trust that. Now it's, and like maybe that's the only place that the degree adds value, it's like, okay, it's, if you graduate from a top business school in Canada called the Richard Ivy School of Business, that gave me sort of some, I guess I can go in and say, I've got an edge because I'm you know, smart and educated, but uh, yeah. Jordan just jumped in a question and says, Mike, I love your channel. I found you from Graham Stephan and thought it was cool that you're from London, Ontario. Cheers from Waterloo. Oh, thanks. <laughs> Appreciate that. <coughs> Sorry, guys. My daughter's sick and, you know, preschool and bring all the sickness home. Appreciate that. That's awesome. Graham's recent video I loved that he did on 80% uh, of traders lose money. I've known this fact for a while, but it's great to, to hear the way that he presents his information. It's so much better than how I can do it. So just watch his video on it. What if you have a primary residence that only has a little bit of equity, say 20 or 30,000, would you leverage that equity out? Judy, that's a tough question. I think that it depends. What is the cost to get that equity out? 
if you can get that twenty or thirty thousand dollars out without breaking out of your current mortgage, without putting a second mortgage on it, like let's say your mortgage is coming up for renewal and it's easy enough for you to throw a new mortgage on and refinance the property, pull that money out, I would. Um, there's no easy way to, t to tap out twenty or thirty grand. It's a lot of effort to get that money out. So for me personally, I don't start tapping a property out until I've got like at least fifty to hundred grand to take out of that property. Then I'll go tap it for a refinance or, or whatnot. Okay, next question. Are there still deals to be found in London with so many YouTube investors marketing the area? Andrew, it, it definitely makes it more difficult to find deals. I think there's a lot of people in London. There's, a, there's something in the water here. Maybe it's like something we've put in the air, like McKe not McKeever and I, and all the other people who are promoting. There's a ton of social media presence in London. Like we're, we're like a unicorn city and there's so many people exploring fire here. We have a group that meets up with 50 or 60 people. They're all like pursuing financial independence, retiring early. London is almost an early retirement Mecca or Haven. And that's probably because three or four years ago, Matt, myself, and I guess we got uh, Dylan and, uh, and Kellen and actually the whole, like Jeff too, everyone's kind of sharing the message because so many of us have, kind of created this little hub. London's attracted people <laughs> to move here. <coughs> Sorry. London's kind of attracted people to move here. And so, uh, yeah, I would say that, that it is sort of a unique, I forget the question. I've lost my train of thought. Buckley's, yeah, it tastes awful, but it works, right? Okay. So Andrew, to answer your question, the short answer is yes, there are still deals. Just picked up like five, uh, just picked up a private deal in Northwest London. People think in Northwest London that you can't have a rate, rate near Western, that you can't have 1% rule. Just picked up an eight bedroom, duplex walkout, full brick for 400 grand privately. Um, ARV is like 550, 600 probably. Do a duplex conversion on it and uh, or rent it out for five grand a month or on Airbnb for 9,000 a month. Tons of cash flow. Like on 400,000 purchase price, that feels really, really good. It's 2% rule, I guess, on Airbnb. But uh, yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, you, you've, you've just got to know what you're looking for. Because I've just done enough of this, I know what I'm looking for. I'm able to find deals. It is harder for the average person to find a deal, I think. Now is the time to find deals, though. If you're looking, you're, you're, you're watching this channel at the right time. You're watching this stream at the right time. We're going into a really good buying season, especially in London. And during the next recession, I think there'll be a bit of a correction, maybe five or 10% purchase price. We're gonna see quite a bit of opportunities for, for deals, so that's a win. Okay, next, we oh, I gotta do a lot of these. these. Sorry. <coughs> My throat's getting sore. What is the amount of money you recommend a person have in savings by age 21? So a little pump. There's actually some cool data online that says like average net worth by age. Financial Samurai, like what Sam has on his blog, he has a ton of data on like age and net worth you should expect to have. When I was 21, what did I have? I'm an exception. I bought a, my first house at 19 and I renovated the whole thing while I was in school. So I created a lot of equity doing that. And I also had good full-time jobs, like even in second year, I was working like 30 hours a week while going to school. So I'm an anomaly. I'm probably not a good example, but my net worth was like maybe 90 or 100 grand, something like that at that time. So that would be like the exceptional. So if you could have like even 10,000 positive, above zero at 21 is probably 
above average, I would say, because most people have student debt. So yeah, I would say you'd be above average with a positive net worth. But yeah, I would say if you've saved, like depending on when you started, if you saved already some money, that's that's amazing. That's that's good right there. 21, you're still so young. So much opportunity to, to build wealth. I have 10,000 in stocks, I also have 9,000 in credit card debt. Any advice? Border Hopper, unless that credit card debt is off of like a nine, there's cards like the MBNA 0% interest cards that have like a one or 2% interest rate, 0% interest, but like a one or 2% balance transfer fee. And those are like, that's good debt. But any other credit card debt is terrible, terrible. Like makes me feel sick, I'm gonna throw up in my mouth. Sell your stocks off, pay off your credit card debt. I can promise you long-term you will not beat 19% uh, after-tax rate of return from stocks. If you pay off your interest on your credit card debt, that's an after-tax return of 19%. That's equivalent to like 30% in stocks. You're not gonna get that. So sell your stocks, pay off your credit card debt. I know it doesn't feel good to go have your amount of assets drop, but your net worth is actually overall gonna increase. Net worth is assets minus liabilities, so that's all there is to it. Sell it, that's, that's a simple answer. Border hopper, sell the stocks, pay off the credit card debt. Unless it's like really cheap credit card debt, which I assume that it isn't. Tommy, can you explain how the banks use rental income to qualify for a mortgage? <clears throat> what percentage of a gross do they use? I'm approved for 300,000 with my work income. Hmm, well 36K gross rents add. So how do the banks use rental income to qualify? It depends on the bank or the credit union. Some are, so some credit unions use 70% of net rental income and they'll take rental income minus basic expenses, property taxes and insurance. And they'll say that's the net. And then they'll say, uh, they'll account like 70% of that figure towards you qualifying, which can be huge. Like some credit unions, as you buy more properties, you get, it's get easier and easier to qualify. Scotiabank has a cross off program where each property that's cash flow positive, greater than the mortgage and all their expenses, and has like more than that, they cross it off and pretend it doesn't even exist. So it just like is neutral. Um, most banks take 50% of rental income. <clears throat> Losing my voice here. Jeez. Uh, I live in a rented condo in Toronto and I have $50,000. I'm considering buying a house. My questions are where should I buy uh, in Toronto? Should I invest and watch it grow? <coughs> Live every week for you guys. Even when I'm losing my voice. Oh, my throat is killing me. Where do you buy? That depends on the location that you work, I think. Being close to work is important. Might be able to drop the car. That'd be huge. Um, do I think any one area of Toronto is better than another? I can't predict the future. I don't know which area is gonna appreciate better. I think close to like the workplaces like downtown always will have value. And so I'm very bullish on core locations, like close to University of Toronto or close to like, there's a lot of core locations. I think despite being very expensive, we'll always be expensive. And so there's value in that and they'll hold their value very well. Whereas in a recession, you might see those areas are least, they're least price sensitive. So those areas tend to drop the least. It's the outliers and the areas not as close to like the colleges and the schools and the, all the workplaces in downtown. They're hit the hardest in a recession. So location, location, location. Find a good location. Okay. Um, next question is from Money Games. Private mortgage trust versus mortgage stock versus private lending. I like mortgage stock the least. Private mortgages are great. They're to me the same thing as private lending. 
You could do private mortgages through a broker and they'll take a couple percentage fee and they'll set it all up for you. That's something you can do that would definitely, um, that's a good way to do it. I like that because it's easy and hands-free, but if you want that extra return, go and find the people, you know, put out Kijiji ads yourself and look for people, or go on Kijiji looking for people or talk, go to a real estate networking event and I guarantee you go to like three events, you'll find someone looking for private mortgages, a flipper or something, who's willing to, to borrow the money on security against the property. And always get the property appraised yourself just to be sure on the value. Okay, William says, I have four places in Detroit, but banks make it tough because you can only pull 50% out of LLCs there. So I have a ton of equity sitting there. Ouch. I don't know of a structure to get that out. Find a way to get that out. That kills your returns. Unless you're flipping, buying and holding with 50% debt and 50% equity, it's a bad return on your money, unfortunately. Yeah, I can't think of a way to, that makes sense. Even with like 12 cap rate or 14 cap properties, you're looking at best at 20 something percent return, 50%, like with 50% uh, um, debt, 50% equity. It feels a lot better with 25% down or 20% down. Your return is double. So that, that definitely plays in a negative way for you. Run your numbers. Maybe it still isn't so bad. Maybe your return hurdle is like 15% and you're still getting that. Okay. Then there's not much you can do. You go to private lenders and say, hey, I want to put a second mortgage on here and borrow another 25% for my portfolio from a private lender, like 8% or 9% interest rate. And if your properties are cash flowing at a 12 or 13% um, you know, cap rate, then that's not bad. You still have a spread between what you're borrowing at and what your cap rate is. If you're ever borrowing at a cost of debt that's higher than the cap rate on the property, if you don't know how to calculate cap rate, do a quick Google search. You'll see it's like um, net operating income divided by the market value of the property gives you your cap rate. It's basically the price purchase price relative to the rents. And William says I'm slow to sell because the yields are high but very difficult to leverage. May move up there just to get owner occupied, lower percentage financing. Yeah, William, that's a huge advantage. If you're living there, then or you're buying them personally, maybe even you can get higher loan to value, which would juice your returns even more. That's sexy. Sexy returns. What are some good wholesaling sites and contacts? Kijiji. Go on Kijiji, go to real estate networking events. You'll meet all the wholesalers within five meetups. The guaranteed if you go five months straight, you'll find the wholesalers. They come out to the meetup groups. They're busy sometimes, but they come out. Steph, hey Mike, love your value you offer. Thank you so much, appreciate that. Um, if anyone's watching and they wanna send a super chat to support the channel, that'd be cool. But if they don't, that's cool too. I keep doing it for free. The super chats are the only way that like I do a Patreon or monetize. I basically do it through YouTube. They take 30%, but it tells YouTube that my videos and streams are good and forces it out to my entire subscriber base. Cause right now, not everyone gets the notification, especially if they have notifications off. Um, they don't get the notification because YouTube doesn't think it's generating any revenue for YouTube. So make YouTube some money and let the ads run and super chats. Appreciate that. And it supports Kyle, who is my editor. If Kyle's watching, hi Kyle. Uh, thanks for all your insight today. Hey, no problem, happy to help. Hey Mike, I'm 15, I would like to thank you for this information. I'm excited to start investing after university. Chad, that's awesome. Keep me updated on your journey and how it's going. What are your thoughts on rental arbitrage for Airbnb? Uh, example, renting out a house and then listing on Airbnb. Uh, have I tried this method? So it's called rent hacking, basically. So rent hacking is you rent a place out, you sublet it out for more money. Maybe with the bed, the bedroom or put it on Airbnb. 
it's a tale as old as time. Um, I've known about runtacking for like half a decade. I was one of the first people to talk about it a couple of years ago. Now everyone's kind of picked it up and started talking about it. All the major channels have started talking about runtacking. I think I helped popularize it before it was a big thing. Um, it was a great way to get your living costs down to zero. I think if you're doing it as a business, be careful. I, it's illegal in Ontario to rent a property and re-rent it out for more, more money. The landlord can go after you for the difference at any time. They can take you and go after that difference. And it's, even if you have in the lease, they can go after you for it. If you don't have in the lease, be careful. Be very careful. If the landlord's consenting and agreed, you got a separate agreement that says you have the right to do that, you put in your lease and you're super protected, I don't feel as bad about that. But if you don't, if the landlord doesn't know, look out, it's legal. Um, and they can, they do have, there is legal precedent of landlords going after and saying, I didn't know about this, even if they did know, I didn't know about this, the person's making an extra two grand a month off me, that's my money. And they've gone after it and they've won. So be careful, especially if you're furnishing it all, you spent ten or $20,000 on furniture and the furniture gets trashed or thrown out or you, you could lose money. Just be careful. If you're making $1,000 a month profit, the furniture can get ruined and then you're screwed. So that's the scary thing about Airbnb is you'll spend fifteen or $20,000 on furniture and imagine if that furniture has a depreciation life of one year and you made $15,000 on the re-rental, your entire profit went to just covering furniture. So the profit's not near as high as you think it is when you factor in the cost of staging and the risk associated. Myself personally, I haven't done, I don't do a lot of it because I don't think the returns are high enough for the time. It's just a low paying job. But if you're looking for work and you're looking for work that pays 20 or $30 an hour, Airbnb re-rental, it's a decent gig. You can make some money at it. It's a lot of energy, a lot of effort. You gotta put capital out to buy the furniture and all that crap, but you can make an okay amount of money doing it. Also ask yourself if you really wanna to go to college. If you can build enough passive income for you to be happy, then what's the point? Yeah, I actually regretted, like my second year, I thought about dropping out just before I went into Ivy. I seriously considered dropping out of school. And uh, I had a strong average. My average was like 87. Like, I'm, I was a strong A student, but um, I thought about dropping out because the cost, opportunity cost was so high. Not just the cost of tuition and books and all that. That's like minor compared to the opportunity cost. That's the real cost of college. The real cost of college is like you could be working a $60,000 a year job for four years. That's $240,000. But moreover, $240,000 invested at 10% or even 8% over your entire life is several million dollars. So is four years of college worth $5 million when you're 65? That's about the math. Would you rather $5 million cash when you turn 65, guaranteed, or would you rather a college degree? That's what you have to ask yourself. The numbers do not work out for most people. The MBAs are even worse. Harvard MBAs are even worse. If someone offered me a Harvard MBA right now, if I was accepted to Harvard for an MBA right now, I would turn that down 10 out of 10 times. It just does not make sense for the executive two-year MBA. It's a terrible, if you run the numbers on the pay boot, pay bump from 100 grand a year to 150 grand a year. I know it's a huge pay bump to most people, 50% increase in their income. If you run that against the opportunity cost for those two years, plus the cost of the Harvard MBA, the Harvard MBA in 98% of the situations loses. And I should do a video just on that because people think that like it's the BL end all to get an MBA from Harvard or whatever, but actually a bad idea financially. And most people who go to Harvard are driven financially for the, like for an MBA at Harvard, they're driven financially. And so it's funny that you bring that up future ways because the, uh, yeah, it just, it doesn't, it, the math doesn't make sense. Unicorn in a cup. It's a unicorn in a cup. Maybe it'll be part of my channel. Like I have just a random set design right now. I'm always trying different things and seeing, uh, you know, what works. People have been commenting on the unicorn in the cup, so I've kind of left it. It's cute. It's my daughter's unicorn. 
that kind of, she put it in the YouTube cup and I sort of just was like, I'm gonna leave that there. Thanks David, appreciate it. Mike, I love your channel, I found you through Graham. Thanks, appreciate that. Buckley's, ain't hey, no problem, happy to answer the question. Uh, is there any areas you'd not consider investing in or that are questionable? There are a lot of questionable areas in London. All of East London is fairly questionable. There are uh, south of Horton or Soho, there's a huge area in there that's questionable. Uh, there's some pockets, yeah, east and south, there are pockets that are questionable. There are no pockets that are questionable in north or west that I can think of. They're all A-level. So, yeah, I, I like to own in better neighborhoods than worse neighborhoods. Personally, it's just my personal preference when I invest. Location, location, location. But there is no area I will not buy property in. That is my new rule. So if someone brings me a property in East London, and I have lots of properties in East London now because I started buying with investor capital and I couldn't find enough deals in Northwest and downtown, like all around that Fanshawe corridor. So I had to start going to the East at, you know, Soho and all those areas to find deals. But sometimes there's really good deals there. So don't overlook them just because, you know, just because you don't see it, just because you don't see value in that location doesn't mean there isn't value in the property. For instance, I bought a property that was worth like 250,000 for 150. And that's an example of like, at 50, 50 cents on the dollar, I will take that property in any area. So if you can find deals, a really, really good cash flow, it can offset the fact that you deal with crappy tenants, crappy area, higher vandalism, all the negative things of a C-class area. So yeah, I'm okay with C-class areas, so long as certain things are provided, but don't pay top dollar to be in those areas. And uh, yeah, that's about it. Pros and cons of how, of, Pros and cons, how mortgage brokers. So I don't know what the question is. Like, Harriet, um, the pros and cons of using a mortgage broker. Uh, pros, you have access to more lenders. Um, cons, a fee is paid to them. So I don't know. Uh, going direct through a mobile specialist at a bank gets you better terms. Like for instance, broker channel through Scotiabank can only do up to five mortgages. The mobile employed Scotiabank, not at the branch, but the mobile mortgage specialist at Scotiabank can do 10 mortgages. That's something you can't get through Broker Channel. Um, the net worth programs, some of those are just through direct through the branch. So there are some things where you can get just some nuances with, with brokers, but um, get a mortgage broker. They can shop a bunch of rates, get you way better terms long-term. That's huge. Um, that's a huge value. I think it's important to use a mortgage broker to get a better rate. How do you get into private lending? Let's say I have a couple hundred thousand dollars. How do I activate? So NSK forever. Um, how do you get into private lending? You reach out to me. I'll borrow your money and I'll put it to work. I know a lot of people who are looking to put money to work too. I can connect you. Uh, but yeah, I, I would just borrow your money if you want to put money to work. But the better way to do that is to go to a real estate meetup group. Go to places like, um, there's tons of, if you go on KGG, tons of mortgage brokers who are licensed who take investor capital and then lend it out to deals. So reach out to some mortgage brokers that do that, who are licensed, uh, and then go to real estate meetup groups and you'll find people who are looking for capital. You can put it to work. There are companies who specifically do this, like they'll take your money in, like Olympia Trust is a good one that'll do that with RSPs and TFSAs, and they'll take that money and put it to work for you in registered accounts. So there's lots of places you can go to get the money put to work to you. You can do it yourself or you can go through a channel to help you do it. Uh, but yeah, go ahead and put that to work right now. I'll put your money to work right now. 10% rate of return. What are some uh, passive income ideas for someone in their 20s? Dan, great question. 
there are a million passive income ideas. You can do everything from, you know, writing for, for people, you know, putting ads on websites and things like that, all the way to like real estate investing, all the way to essentially this. If you put a bunch of time into something, you, get a, you can get passive income. You might have to put time in to build something that will generate you passive income. You can also put a lot of money into something to generate passive income. So you either put money into something and it generates passive income or you put time into something and it generates passive income. There's no way to get passive income for nothing. If you put no time and no money, not no energy, nothing into something, you don't get passive income. You have to put energy into it, time or money or a combination of all of it. That's the secret to passive income. Um, yeah, like dividend investing, rental income is somewhat passive. You put a lot of time in up front, then you get passive returns from it. Stock investing, private lending is a great way to get passive income. Um, I see people doing, they start affiliate marketing type businesses. That's a good way to get passive income. If you put a lot of time in, you get the return. Um, there's lots of ways to get, uh, lots and lots of ways to get passive income. All right, next questions. I'm gonna try to breathe this out because my throat is killing me. Where should I put my money in order to get an eight to 10% return, Chad says. So you could go just buy a REIT, a publicly traded real estate investment trust share in, in them. They'll go buy property for you and give you an eight to 10% distribution. You could also do private lending, um, reach out to places like Lending Loop, Lending Tree. You could lend to people through those platforms. You could lend to people for car loans and things like that through those platforms too. There's crowdfunded real estate platforms you can use in the US. Canada's lagging. I wish that we had that legislation to support it. Someone, I had this idea to bring crowdfunded real estate to Canada, but the red tape was so large that I just gave up. Um, maybe someday I'll be part of that. If it happens in Canada, I would love to be a part of whoever gets that ball rolling. Friends of mine I went to school with at Ivy started the company called Lending Loop. They're great here in, um, in Canada. They do lending from business person to business. So investors can lend to businesses through their platform and get 10 or 12% rates of return. And they just give you like, they profile the companies for you and screen them and do all the work. So I live in Toronto, make $90,000 a year trying to save for a place, but it's very expensive. Not sure what I should do. Keep saving. <laughs> That's, I wish I had a better solution. You could do the 5% down type things, but um, probably just keep saving until you get enough capital or just get an entry level property. Maybe you could find a condo, like a little two bedroom condo you can get access to with a hundred grand. You find something for four or $500,000 and you get 20% down with hundred grand. So you're getting close, getting in the market now and then Always just sell the house in a couple of years when you build some equity up through paying on the mortgage and maybe get a roommate to help cover the mortgage cost or your Airbnb a room out if it's a two bedroom. If it's a one plus a den, maybe you frame the den in with like bookshelves from Ikea to make like a separate little space you can Airbnb or rent out. In Toronto, that stuff, you actually get away with it and it's viable. So just take action, take action. You can always upsize to the next house after. So that's a good way to get started. Get something and then buy another house that's bigger and trade up. How hard is it to get a 25% return in real estate? I'm concerned hidden expenses that make real estate not worth it unless I'm highly skilled like yourself. I make a great return investing in stocks. So Harriet, it's tough. I think the stock versus real estate argument. I'm torn myself. I have a stock portfolio and I have real estate. I'm heavy in real estate because of the expertise that I have. Most of my stock portfolio is sitting in, I've sold it and moved to real estate because the returns are so juicy. Um, how do you do it? You put 20% down, you get an 80% loan to value mortgage. When you're 20% down, even on a crappy like turnkey deal, if you're getting an 8% return on asset and you go put 20% down, all of a sudden your levered return is five to one. So your 8% return becomes like 35, 40, let's say after cost of debt, 30, 35% return on your money. So you can buy a property 
that paid off in cash generates a 6% return, put 20% down, that generates 25% right there. So it's not that hard in most markets to get a 25% return on your investment. So not that hard. And if you're worried, Harriet, reach out to me. If you've got enough capital you want to start investing, reach out to me and, and I'll partner with you. And even net of my partnership cut, if we joint venture and we go 50-50 or whatever, some form thereof, 60-40, whatever, 50-50, likely your cut after that is still going to be around 20 or 25%. That's what I target. It's 25% minimum return for all my investors. So it's doable. Totally doable. Easy enough. You can even partner with guys like me to do all the work if you're worried about the expertise piece. For every dollar you invest when you're assuming... When you're 20, 7% rate of return until you're 65, you can make 80.8 per year, therefore after with a 4% safe withdrawal rate. There you go. It's almost a dollar in passive income for every dollar you invest. Jordan, that's a huge educating stat. Scary, right? We need to be investing every dollar we can now because the money's on our side. If I can save another million dollars, let's say I can save another, let's say I can, I can make another $3 million between now and when I'm 29. 27, 28, 29, it's three more years from now. So that $3 million now turns into like $30 million in retirement. That's huge. Chong, sup? That's huge, right? Uh, usually impactful. So save now, every dollar invested now is thousands of dollars. You know, every 10, 10 20, $30 you put away now becomes thousands of dollars later on. Hugely important. Are you educated on how extremely dangerous asbestos is? How do you make certain you aren't exposed? Harriet, I am educated on asbestos and I have remediated it myself. Do you know how you get rid of asbestos safely? A spray bottle and a garbage bag. <laughs> the key is this, like if you have asbestos, if you have a piece of asbestos around a pipe, you got to remove. It's like, it looks like just like a cloth wrap. It's a little bit different than cloth material, but come across it all the time. It's only dangerous if you disturb it first off. Asbestos is not dangerous if you don't disturb it. That's the first thing. Second thing, once you disturb it, you have to encapsulate it in some, in some form. So the way you do that is you take a spray bottle and you spray it, keep it damp and wet. The fibers are only an issue if they're airborne. So if they're not airborne, you keep them, keep it matted, keep it really, really wet. That's how they, the guys get in suits and they have masks on, but the key is they spray it, keep it wet and the particles don't go anywhere because they keep encapsulated. That's the secret to asbestos. It's not as scary as people think. It, it doesn't scare me. Lead paint also doesn't scare me. When you're sanding it though, be careful. You breathe that in, it's not good. Breathe in probably too much in my day. All in the sake of making a dollar. It's time to focus on my health. I don't do that stuff anymore for a reason. Too rich for it. I outsource it. What is your favorite credit card? Dean Withers, good question. What is my favorite credit card? I have two favorites. I, I wish I could just pick one, but they're equally good for different reasons. So one, I love the World Elite uh, cash back card. It's 5% cash back on everything you buy. And then I think it's 2% cash back after the promotion ends and like 5% on groceries and gas and stuff. That's a good amount of cash back. You spend a thousand bucks on groceries, you get 50 bucks. That's huge. So I love the cash back card. It's my favorite. The world elite is the best in Canada and it's a bit hard to qualify for, but you can honestly, I don't even check the income. So I've, I know friends who don't have the, like, I actually have the income to qualify for one, but I know people who don't and they got it anyway. They got still approved. So I don't know. The second favorite card that I have, credit card, is the MBNA 0% credit card. It is tops. I actually have three favorite credit cards. The second one is it's tops because I should do a video just on credit cards, but for this tangent, I'll go on and talk about it. 
you can borrow. I have a, like a $12,000 limit or $15,000 limit. They send me promotions every couple of months, borrow at 0% down to get, and they transfer it into your bank account. It's a direct wire transfer like the same day. So I can go borrow for zero. There's a one or 2% balance transfer fee. So effectively for one year, you pay 2% interest to borrow 12 grand or whatever your limit is on the card. But to borrow money at 2%, that's below prime. Like I could literally just go put that money on my like mortgage and make money. So it's dirty. It like, if you don't have an MBNA 0% um, card, go get one. It's like the best card in Canada. I've used, my wife and I both had one and we used it for a down payment on a property. We qualified and then we went and took the MBNA credit cards, borrowed them both down all the way at 0% and had, it was actually cheaper than our mortgage. The down payment was cheaper than the mortgage and we had a zero down property we bought. So the MBNA credit card, go get it. 0% down card, it's great. And then keep applying to increase your credit limit over every you know six months to a year. And then it becomes a huge credit limit and you got access to like 50 grand at 0% interest. It's dirty. And the third favorite card is the Amazon card or the Marriott Bonvoy card because there's zero currency fees when you're buying in US. It transfers to Canadian for no currency fee. So normally the credit cards bake in like three or 5% fee when you're buying in foreign currency and there's no fee on those cards. There are no fee, no foreign exchange fee. That's huge. So those three cards are my favorite credit cards. Okay. Um, where to start with real estate investing and what job should I graduate with a business commerce degree? So you wanna start in real estate investing? I don't know, business is a good place to start because you understand the fundamentals of business and real estate is in itself a business. Each property is like a business on its own kind of. So my thoughts are, um, where do you get started? Real estate agent is a good place to get started. Um, get a job working in the field in some way. Go volunteer for a top performing agent or real estate investor in town. Be their analyst or their admin. And you'll get, if you're good, you get promoted quick. Say, hey, I'll write your offers for you. Would it be okay if I just had access to your admin? And whenever you wanted to write an offer, just message me, pay me 50 bucks, I'll write your offers for you. That's extremely attractive. Like me as an agent, I love that. I have an assistant now and it's fantastic. You're right, it is bath time. Just so many people are watching. It's such a good stream. I hate to go when the questions are so good. Okay, so encapsulate asbestos and remove remove with moisture mist. 100%. Andrew, you're right. That's exactly what I was saying. Harriet says, so you're saying you'll joint venture with me. I have no experience. What's in it for you? Cheap debt. Harriet, what's in it for me? Cheap debt. So I get, the money's easy to raise. I can raise money to buy deals all the time. But when I have people who I can get access to cheap mortgages, that's what's in it for me. I don't want to work with people who don't want more than two properties with me, two or three properties, just because administratively I don't want so many JV partners. I want one pro partner who wants to get three or five properties minimum. We buy lots of properties, we make lots of money. It's all a win. So reach out if you want to see what I've got to offer. I can send you some deals and explain to you how it works. Basically, it's a 50-50 partnership. It's nice and simple. I take the risk with you. I don't put the money up. You put the money up, but I pay for half the renovation through my profit. So I'm incentivized to keep costs low. I'm incentivized to run it efficiently. I now partner 50-50 because it, in that range, sometimes I'll do deals where I'll take 40% if the deal's not as sweet or 30%. It's always up for negotiation depending on how good the deal is. But uh, the idea is that I'm in it with you. So if the costs are out of control and there's no profit that month, I lose with you. And my time is extremely valuable. So I don't get into deals that aren't worth my $200, $300 an hour minimum. Next. Hey, the London East right across Fanshawe College is very good for investment. Hype, yes, it is. East London by Fanshawe College, fantastic. Uh, between Huron and Dundas, Highbrain, Clark, what do you think? I'm less bullish. 
you can still get some students there. It's not a bad area if you can get a good deal. It's not Northwest London. It's not right at Fanshawe College. It's not right near Western. It's not North or West. It's all right. But anywhere there's a deal, I'm all about that. And I think London's long-term has good fundamentals. In East London, there's places you can buy below replacement build cost. That's huge. I'll buy this stuff all day. Hey, if I have parents who would like to retire soon but haven't invested, what would be your advice for what they should do? Uh, sit down with a financial planner or someone like myself and uh, build a fire plan. How to allocate their assets, how to build a proper plan that'll generate them passive income. Maybe part of that's real estate investing, maybe part of that's reallocating their portfolio. Super important to spend the time to think through that. Do you think the home buyer's first time loan is worth it? No, except with one exception. So I hate CMHC and all those guys who you know charge those crazy fees. I think it's ridiculous. You buy 5% down and the fee is almost 4%. You lose your entire down payment and fees to them. So if you sell your property tomorrow, you lost your whole 5% down payment. That's scary. But there's a new program that they've introduced here in Canada where you partner with them and they don't charge you any upfront fees and they take, I think it's five or 10% of appreciation. So when you sell it down the road, you have to pay them out five or 10% of the profit. That's attractive if you're buying 5% down on a property that's a cash flow rooming house or like a cash flow machine on a derelict building. One that's not gonna appreciate, they're just gonna milk for cash flow. Cause then you sell it five years from now or three years from now, or you refinance them out. You know, you can just refinance them out, right? Refinance them out a year from now, pay them out their profit, get it, get it appreciated, get it appraised. And if it didn't go up in value and you milked it for a ton of cash flow, they didn't get any of the cash flow and you'd have to pay them any fee. So that's a 5% down mortgage with no fee. That's attractive. So the one where you share in the profit is very attractive on that one exclusion if it's not an appreciating property, one that's a cash flow king. You don't plan on adding value to. Only exception. I thought I would never say that I believe in the 5% down program here in Canada because the fee structure is so high. In the US, it's not bad for private mortgage insurance. In Canada, it's ridiculous. Just retarded how bad the fee structure is. Yeah, you basically lose your entire 5% down payment. So it only makes sense that you're gonna buy and hold long-term and you can't borrow the money. So if you can get the 20% down payment by borrowing the money from loan sharks at 15%, that's a better option. So happy to help. If you, that advice right there was worth like 10 bucks, someone better super chat me $10 right now. I need to earn something on the super chat just so I can feel like there's value. You don't have to, there's no obligation. I'm super frugal and I understand if no one wants to super chat. I'm gonna end this stream in about one minute. If you didn't do real estate, what would be your second choice? So if I didn't invest in real estate in any way, what would I do? I'd probably, I, I would always invest in real estate. Even if I wasn't actively investing in it, I'd invest in someone else to do it. Um, but what would I invest in is my second choice, private lending. It's stable and it, you can do the due diligence to get like really good risk to reward. Risk to reward is the most important thing you can do. Um, yeah. So how to move forward if someone wanted to JV with you. So Andrew, uh, just reach out on my Instagram profile at Mike Roseheart and hit me up on Instagram, slide in my DMs. The other way is I have an email. It's roseheartproperties at gmail.com. Send me an email. And yeah, what would I do? I'd probably invest in private lending. I would lend, I'd, I'd buy, invest in businesses. I like owning small businesses, the cash flow, strong cash flowing small businesses or medium sized businesses that are not publicly traded. They're my favorite because you can get really good rates of return. 
and you can use leverage to get great rates of return. Then of course comes like the exchange traded fund portfolio, the stock investing, fantastic return. And uh, yeah, that's, that's what I think. That's uh, that's the best. I gotta end the stream. We're 80 minutes in. See, I said I would do a small stream and look at this. I plugged in for you guys and I kept going almost an hour and a half long. The Mike Rosart show, it goes on for you guys. I have an annualized return of 23% over seven years of investing, 80% of my net worth in Apple, Google, and Amazon. What's your hot take on that? Luck. <laughs> Luck. Apple, Amazon, and Google, it's like saying, it's like any of the appreciation investors who bought, and I don't, I don't mean to disrespect or throw any shade in any way. You probably have a good strategy. You're probably investing well. Statistically speaking, we've been investing in the best bull market ever. In the last 10 years to knock at a 20% return in the strongest bull market we've ever had ever since 2009, um, it's, it's just crazy. Like everyone made money and they made lots of it. You're not an anomaly to get that kind of return in stock investing in the last 10 years. Let's see how the next 10 or 15 years go. Let's see how you do over a 30 year period, right? What we see is that hedge fund managers, the smartest elite investors, they don't beat the market. They don't beat the S&P 500 over the long term. The data shows people fail, stock investors fail. So over a 25 year period or a 30 year period, what you'll see is there'll be losses. Um, <laughs> that's right, Harriet. Hundred percent. If I was you and you had the, like you've got great returns, we've had a bull market. I cashed out some of my stock investments, put them into real estate too, because we don't know what the future holds, right? We've had a great bull market. Take your gains off the table. If you invested in Bitcoin, you invested in like Ethereum or one of those cryptocurrencies, people are like, hey, I invested in crypto and I made a bunch of money. I'm like, that's amazing. One, that was luck. Two, take your money and run and put it in something safe. Um, <laughs> You've made a lot of money. Celebrate that fact. Do I think that long-term you're guaranteed to have that success? There's a very low probability. You've made a lot of money. Be happy that money. Take that money off the table. Maybe keep a little bit in the stocks, but pull back and, and put a lot in something safe. Real estate is something that's safe. It's like treasury bills or bonds, but just way better return and more control. Anyway, we're over 80 minutes, and I promised that I would wrap this up. Get that crown molding. Why hasn't someone bought this house? I better have an offer on this house in the next week. I probably will. I think I'll have an offer in the next couple of days. Anyway, everyone, thank you all for watching. I appreciate you all more than you know. And uh, despite not getting a super chat tonight, I do appreciate the support. Um, I don't have a Patreon channel, so this is the way that you support me. You come on here once a month and you donate me five or 10 bucks. It means a lot. I produce a lot of free content. I'm glad that you're getting value from it. Thank you all for the hundreds of people that have tuned in tonight. And over, we have 60 concurrent viewers on the live stream, and that means a lot to me. So thank you all so much for tuning into the live stream. I'll see you next week. And I'm always in the comments every single Saturday around noon Eastern Standard Time for the video. Today's video is on, or sorry, this Saturday's video is on the topic of are you an investor or a gambler? Thanks everyone and have a happy Wednesday.